All right. This is Ronin Rescue Cast uh, number unknown. It is our first rescue cast recorded from the United States. Yay, so it won't be all Canadian from here out. Uh, I'm Craig McClure, and I'm here from the Women of Women in Rescue. I found them a couple months ago, and they launched their Instagram account. Uh, found some really engaging content, and on a personal level, was really excited to see it happen. Uh, my wife struggled with being in rescue, uh, not finding a community that embraced her and the way she learned, and didn't really have role models. And my daughter is still at the age where she thinks I'm super cool and wants to be what I am. And I know she's eight, so I have maybe four more years of that. Uh, but when she gets to age, um, I want her to still find people that are excited about this because it won't be me. It needs to be other role models. So purely on a family selfish level, uh, I love what you do. And of course it goes deeper than that. And uh, we met, we had, a, we had a little chat on the phone uh, while I was parked on the side of the road outside Vegas in crazy heat and decided that maybe the podcast was a good way to kind of get this relationship started and get you guys out there. So the floor is yours, man. Tell us who you are, what you're about, and uh, why'd you get this whole thing started? So it has been a really interesting journey being a woman in rescue. And for me, it feels like a lifestyle, not a hobby or what I do. It has been embodied in so much of every nook and nook and cranny of my life. Um, but one of the things I didn't see as I came on to rescue was the representation of women in rescue. So that's what we're looking to do. So my name is Cassie Aguirre and I am a member of Albuquerque Mountain Rescue. I've been on the team for seven years. It's an all volunteer team, a part of the MRA. And my full-time job is a teacher. Um, but really my passion is rescue and being outside. And I'm Aspen Wilkes. I was really fortunate to come into rescue really young. I started when I was 19 and I've just really fallen in love with it. I've also been on AMRC for the past seven years. And I'm also just really excited to help create this community and have these conversations in the context of women in rescue. Okay. Uh, do you feel your experience is representative across the country. If you looked at other rescue teams, if you joined those, would you have had the same feeling? So I would say so, that we definitely don't want to speak on behalf of anyone else. What we're really interested in doing is helping facilitate these conversations and determine what commonalities other women in rescue share, where we have varied experiences and go from there. Um, because I think there's definitely a lot of overlap and a lot of differences between different teams and organizations. But one of the founding things that we've seen just in the short time that we've been running this Instagram account and talking to other women who are in this industry is a lot of women, not all of them. We've definitely had some women step up and talk to us about how their teams are 50% women and they've got great representation, but we've definitely heard from many more women who talk about the lack of representation and role modeling that they see of other women in this industry. And it does raise the question of why is that? Why are we not seeing more women in leadership roles and training roles or in command roles? Yeah, sorry if I, I kind of blindsided you with that question. We had a we had a list of where we were going and that one popped into my head. Um, just my anecdotal experience of, of being of being a trainer for a while and traveling around. Um, I think the teams you refer to that are saying there's there's 50% women in high representation are the anomaly. And 100% agree. If if you look at the enrollment in our classes, it, it's it's telling the same story. So, yeah, and I think that one of the things that we've noticed is while there are a lot of different experiences and unique viewpoints from women in rescue, we do have these larger overarching systemic elements that we want to look at that are acting um, to put some barriers and challenges in place for women in this industry. 
Yeah, it was interesting last week. Having a platform like social media is a great place to start facilitating conversations and understanding where everybody else is coming from. So last week we ran a story series where we asked um, the people who engage within our community and follow our account um, if they thought women faced additional hurdles um, or challenges and barriers in rescue. And it was overwhelmingly yes. Um, What what were they? I'm super curious. What were they? So we had a lot of great personal experiences shared. It's interesting. One of the most common ones, and this is such an easy one to rectify, is this idea of unisex gear. Um, So many women came to us and were like, we just would love it if we could have our teams buy female specific gear because it it improves fit and functionality for us in the field as women with a slightly different body type because unisex, it does not fit a female's body in the same way. It's bulky, you get chafing. Uh, Sometimes you just put that harness down on and it's like cinched as far as it can go. And you're like, hmm, all right. Like it's not gonna go over my hips, but man, this is not gonna improve my ability to function as a rescuer. Is, Is it just harnesses or is it more? What else, what else is happening? So I think that the gear and the harnesses are some great examples of these smaller things. Uh, We also had a lot of answers that related to this idea of implicit bias and, you know, these attitudes or ideas that we have about women or other groups that are unconscious and how those can affect women participating in this industry. Um, And those were things like, getting passed over in quick decision-making moments and not recognizing women's leadership or skills as easily. So I think that there was a wide range of replies to that question. Okay. I want to go there, but before we go too far, because we do get manufacturers and gear designers and engineers listening, is it just harnesses? And they, by the way, they respond to market demand, right? That that's what that's what drives what they decide to build. Is it just harnesses, or is it helmets don't fit properly? Is it gloves that are wrong size? Is it the is it the outdoor gear? What's where are the gaps? One of the other answers that we got was a woman talking about having to wear a unisex dry suit, and that being problematic for her functioning and rescue. Okay. And what's really interesting about this dichotomy is the outdoor industry has caught up a lot in the last decade in improving the functionality of female gear that's offered and the variety. And so a lot of this gear does exist. It's just we're not seeing organizations purchasing it because and maybe they're just not aware of it. It does play into this mindset of unisex. It's going to be the one size, one fits all opportunity. And it's a little bit easier from a administrative standpoint. But what that does do is a unisex is really, it's male's gear with a unisex tag on it. There's nothing tailored to help support the way that a woman's body um, curves and is differently. I mean, my one of my biggest complaints, and actually this is one I have not found a female specific version of, is my radio harness. I hate wearing a radio harness and I have broken my radio because I don't wear a radio harness and I've put it in pockets or in the lid of my backpack and worn the extended mic and it falls out. And, you know, sometimes I bust the antenna, sometimes I, I've busted the radio and it's unfortunate because it's a piece of gear that seems really easy to tailor to be able to sort of fit the chest of a woman, but it it's not out there. So that would be a piece of gear I would kill to have. And I think this contributes to this idea that in rescue right now, male is still our standard. It's still what we assume works for everyone. And having these conversations is allowing us to really highlight the fact that that introduces additional challenges for women, for sure. Okay. Well, if you're a gear designer and you're listening, wait to the end. We have their contact info uh, and, and pick their brain. So next set of barriers, you guys, you, you guys talked about representation in the whole and then things like not getting recognized for leadership roles. Um, I assume that that probably comes down to like promotion with the, the, the organization. Um, what, what's happening there and what, 
these are the big questions. What changes it? What so this is a great conversation because I it seems like a lot of these conversations right now, we hit the point of talking about recognizing that there's issues, but not knowing how to move forward through them. Um, and really one of the foundations that leads into this disparity between women in rescue, women in leadership in rescue, seems like it's playing on this foundation idea of implicit bias. And implicit bias are these attitudes and ideas about groups that, that we harbor unconsciously. And we all have them. I can 100% speak to the fact that I have them. As a teacher, this is training that I have done over and over and over again to understand what are these biases that I bring into a classroom as an instructor that's supposed to facilitate access for all of my students and where where have I failed in providing that access and the only way that I'm going to understand where I've made those mistakes or had those failures is through the examination of what is it that I personally bring into the classroom um, and we see it all the time so I'm a science teacher at the high school level and even as a female science teacher it's amazing that the research shows that we uh, favor our male students. Um, and so it's something that I, I consciously bring into the classroom to make sure that when I'm calling on students to answer questions that like I'm putting tick marks in my brain. I've had a male student, I've had a female student. If I have nobody raising their hand that's of the opposite gender, I call out on someone and ask them to participate because maybe they're afraid to share an answer maybe they're afraid to engage what part of their socialization has played into how they participate and put themselves out there and i think that this 100 translates into rescue and the dynamics that we see within pretty much any industry but really in the rescue industry as well so that's a that's a super vulnerable observation and statement that you as a female teacher find yourself subject to implicit bias that seems like it shouldn't be there. So is that, is that culture? Like, how did you get there? Do you know how you got there as a teacher? That's a great question. So before I became a teacher, I was a field biologist and I worked in wildlife biology and I worked with all men. Um, I did not have female field partners. I did not have female bosses. I didn't have female mentors. Um, I was always around, around the guys. And I think that's not just there and going deeper back into these ideas of the gender norm roles that we prescribe. When I was a kid, I wasn't encouraged to think about the science fields. You're encouraged to think more about the humanities. Um, and so we have these really deep seated ideas of what people should and should not do based on gender. And it just bores me that it comes out, um, you know, decades later in, in my classroom, in how I teach and how I participate with my students and the expectations that I have. Um, and it's made me a much better teacher to be aware of them and the relationships that I'm able to build with students because I can honestly engage in these conversations and also like I'll recognize it, whether it's something simple or whether it's something that I really struggle with is a generational difference are gender pronouns. It's not something that has been super normal in my experience, but it's definitely much more normal in this younger generation. And I mess it up all the time. I'm so thankful that I have forgiving students that one, hold me accountable and two, call me out when I mess up. Yeah. Uh, this is this is interesting. So hearing you phrase it like this is is kind of relieving to me. So my wife, this is this is my wife's realm of work is is this sphere. And and we've had so many conversations where I get defensive. And I get defensive because I get this feeling of, oh, my God, it's another problem. And it's yours because you're the white male in the room. Right? And it, it's it's a hard thing to condition yourself out of that response. And I think she just finally realized, like, tell me something and wait two days and I'll think about it and figure out I should probably write and let, kind of let me come around. Um, but hearing you say that you find yourself subject to the same implicit biases with the same results is really disarming in the conversation. 
it's really helpful. Well, and I think someone say that it's, it's not you as the white male, it's not you as the, is the visual representation of the dominant culture, that it's all of us. Um, and I think that that's so that. important to take the, the shame and the blame out of this conversation and to recognize that it's not an individual failing. It's just this idea of these biases being socialized into us from a young age. And when we take out that shame, then that allows us to react with hopefully less defensiveness or the ability to, like you said, take a step back and re-engage when you've emotionally processed what somebody else was saying. And then it allows us to have the conversation, take accountability and help find solutions. Because if we're approaching this from a more accusative way, we're never going to make any forward progress. Yeah, and I don't think it has to be accusative. It's rarely phrased that way. It is received as accusative. And that's that's a challenging thing to deal with. But let's let's bring this back to rescue. What do rescue is in general, we hope a fairly altruistic community, right? There are people out there, they're volunteering their time to do good for the world. Um, and and I think we can kind of bluntly say we could do it better. Right. Maybe the service we deliver for the world won't change, but how we do it and who does it can be better. And maybe perhaps we could include about half the population at this point that we are um, unnecessarily excluding because of the culture we've created. So what do we do? Like, where's I know you say it's, it starts as a conversation, but what's what's actionable? What's learnable? I'm so putting you on the spot to educate us. One of the areas where I've really observed opportunity to improve has been as a rock technician on my team, helping conduct trainings during our OCC, our incoming class of new members that we train every year. And what I have noticed is that when we start to divide up responsibilities and ask for volunteers for things like who wants to run Maine right now, what I have observed is that the men are really excited, raise their hand and jump to the start of the line. They're really stoked to do it. And you can watch a, many women hesitate and seem to assess whether or not they should let somebody go first, right? This idea of being polite and not taking too much opportunity from other people. And so- While people as, are stepping over them to take that opportunity. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And I wouldn't say stepping over them to take that opportunity, but advocating for themselves and being really excited to take that opportunity. Um, and so because of that, what happens is that during ROCC, men get more time in leadership roles or practicing operating Maine. And I think that difference in opportunity continues on throughout their rescue careers. And so as a rock tech, what I've started doing is I've started assigning those roles and saying, okay, you're going to run main for this round. That way I can be sure that I am equitably dividing out those tasks and making sure that everybody has an opportunity to cycle through so that we can minimize some of those natural biases that play out in real time. So are you, are you getting success taking away the, the standard? I mean, I, as a trainer, do it, right? You, you stand back and say, okay, who wants to do X? Thinking you're going to get the people that are excited and will be successful. Is that just, have we been doing it wrong? Should we be using your model and, and just doling it out? I think that's a really valid question to think about how do we support people in the roles that they want to participate within. Um, but really thinking about like, what does everybody bring and what are our expectations of participation and rescue and in a class like our operational core curriculum our OCC class the expectation is that every member is able to go through that class and be able to be proficient with managing our systems. And if they're overlooked with hands-on time for managing a system, not only is that an inequitable opportunity, but it's also introducing a safety hazard. Um, not 
being aware of how much hands-on time everybody is having, what happens if we get into the field and we have somebody who has made it through this OCC class, hasn't really had that hands-on practice and is in the field responsible for running a main system? What type of risk are we increasing with that or with those assumptions? Um, and so being able to hold the expectation of this is the minimum standard that everybody is required to meet and everybody is required to meet and practice that standard. It may not necessarily be comfortable for everybody, especially new members as they are nervous or afraid of messing up. But that also plays into these cultural dynamics of you don't shame somebody when they make a mistake in practice. We talk about why it's a mistake and use it as a learning moment and a place to grow from. And it's this idea of if we make mistakes or if we fail, how do we fail forward from them versus making it punitive? And that's another huge cultural thing that for me personally has been a real hardship within rescue is I have many times made mistakes. Luckily, they've all been in training and there's never been consequences for those mistakes. Um, but the shame that I felt from making those mistakes, um, because of the harshness that they were responded within, it, it created a dynamic for me that took so much to try and ask to do it again versus an environment of, okay, let's move through this. Let's do better. Um, and that's something that I think that a lot of rescue teams and organizations could think about. Um, hand in hand with this conversation of equity of access, as well as a supportive and safe environment. Can I generalize, this is dangerous, I'm going to say generalize. Can I generalize and ask you, can, is there a way to summarize in your experience, the difference be between the way women learn coming up in the organization, the way men learn? When you when you put it when you put them in the environment, are we feeding people the wrong way? I think it's a tricky one. Um, there are definitely these societal norms that we see that exist in every facet of society based on socialization for children. Um, if we think about it, at the earliest ages. Our boys are socialized to be adventurous and risk takers, and our girls are socialized to be cautious. Um, and we see this all the way through their adult life, and you can look at this in terms of job applications. Men will apply for jobs that they're only 60% qualified for. Women wait to be 100% qualified for jobs. And so there's this hesitation. There's this huge stopgap. And so I don't want to say that there is one way to train people, but there is something in recognizing that with those types of statistics or standards, you are going to get the men that are training that are willing to take a risk and step up and try something new when they may only be 60% ready. Whereas the women might step back and hesitate, they might ask for a second look, which can be a little that can come off as insecurity and the wrong judgments can be made. And that's one of the huge things that I would caution trainers against is thinking about when somebody questions or asks for a second eye, it's not that they don't know what they're doing. It just plays into that want to be 100% sure that they have the right, uh, whether it's qualifications for a job application or the 100% correct way of tying a knot or building a system or assuring that they're following protocols correctly. And so it might not just be a pedagogical or a teaching approach, but a dynamic in terms of what you look for and how you engage. So as, as a trainer, when that, and, and I have seen this almost every time there's, there's a mixed group and, and I'm gonna take, I haven't run the data, and I should, but I'll take a flyer and say, less than 10% of the women in our, less than 10% of our attendees are women. Uh, I, th I think that that's probably a safe round figure. When we have the women in class and they're in this role where they're not, they're not stepping forward and their team isn't pushing them forward, is there something we should be doing to create an environment to draw out that success? And can we, can we as trainers who are only there for a few days, but frequently we can say things other people on the team can't say, cause we're going to leave and they can hate us when we go. They can't hate their teammates for telling them harsh truths. Um, what do we do? How do we improve it? 
So I think that in terms of stepping into these roles, that there is an element of practice and skill building that can absolutely be achieved. And I experienced this when I came onto the team being so young and really struggling to find my voice. I had one of the men who helped mentor me during this time. And after I let a scene and was maybe a little quiet and speaking up would come over to me and be like, these are the things you did great. And this is what you can work on. You can be louder and be more assertive in these aspects so that you can improve this leadership. And that absolutely helps me develop to develop those skills and work on speaking up or taking um, more assertion when I was, you know, acting as sight on a scene. So I think that trainers can absolutely do a lot to help encourage women to shift those dynamics. Is, is assertiveness volume? What else is assertiveness? How, how do you coach that and create that? So I think that plays into this confidence idea. Um, being able to step into that leadership role. I know that I, when I started doing it, felt really shaky and was very nervous. And not only might hit, have been volume of voice, which I'm not actually known for being quiet. I'm a pretty loud person. Uh, my students will attest to that as I taught online, as well as my neighbors all around that were like, oh, so that's what you were teaching today. We all heard. Um, but it was an, a lack of confidence in what I was saying. And one of the ways that I would do that as opposed to framing something as a request, even though I would be in a leadership role and it is a request because you are doing something for me in a leadership role, I would phrase it as a question. Can you do this for me? Would you go over there and take care of building an anchor? And that was something that was brought to my attention after running a training. And I had one of the female team members come over to me and was like, you got to stop asking and you have to start telling. And so that was a frame shift on how I looked at things in that position is because I am not asking. I am here because I've worked hard and I understand what we're doing and I know my stuff inside and out. And I don't want to open the space for someone to, uh, I, I'm going to say it mansplain to me. This happened to a training I ran a few months ago, a much more junior member of the team. I, he was very stoked on what we were doing, very little experience on this topic, and proceeded to mansplain to me as the training organizer about uh, a very foundational aspect of our training. And it was one of those like, uh-huh. Please tell this me you schooled them on the spot. Just tell me you schooled them on the spot just for fun. I did not that day. I definitely, I think my snarky was just missing. I had spent all of my snarky with my students and telling them that, you know, everything under the sun that they kept trying wasn't going to fly. I didn't expect it at a training. Um, but I will tell you, I will not make that mistake again. Yeah, I, I see that across the gender spectrum as a trainer as well. You know, people people giving commands as a question or starting a command with the word please. And you just kind of want to reach out and slap them in the side of the head when they do it, because it, it's not a time to ask permission. You're in charge. It's your vision. It's your responsibility for everyone's safety. And they're just, unless it's unsafe, they, they need to follow. And you can't you can't ask for that followership. You have to take it. 100%. And also the other thing I will notice is, or point out, women apologize all the time. They're building an anchor, they're learning, they're taking time. I'm sorry, I'm taking a minute. And this is one of those dynamics where I'll tell this to our new members as they're coming onto the team. Don't say you're sorry, say, I need a few more minutes. Just place the statement on what you need, contextualize it. If you need help, ask for help. If you're just doing it, get it done and don't apologize for doing it correctly or feeling like somebody's hovering over your shoulder and watching. And it's one of these ideas that through asking questions, through saying please, through saying I'm sorry, it's viewed as weakness. It's viewed as being inefficient or not proficient. 
Um, and those things are usually not true in those situations. And I think that that also is one of these things where we have burdens as trainers and leaders to also recognize those judgments as they come up for us. When we see somebody that is actually doing something correctly and they sound submissive or unsure, look at what they're doing. Ask them if they need help. If they don't need help, don't step in and do it for them. So I, I apologize. I'm slow setting up an anchor. I'm doing it correctly. You as you as the trainer, what's what's your message to me? Do you just do you let me just keep going at my pace? Do you encourage? What do you do? As a teacher, I think the most valuable learning moments are the ones that students have to critically think through on their own. If I step in and do something for a student or for a member on the team, they're not going to learn it there themselves. Being able to cognitively create the process of going through something each step of the way and then checking it when they're done, that's what trainings are for. You get more proficient, you get faster in time as you learn. If we take away the opportunity to lay those foundations of learning in a safe space, then people are going to shy away from trying to do it. They're going to be afraid to try things because of criticism, and then they're going to get into the field and on a rescue and not be where you think they are or where you need them to be as a member. And so I 100% would say, let somebody take their time and struggle through it. And at whatever point that they actually get stuck, then offer the help, offer the guidance. And I think that the other thing that that's helping develop is this idea of self-efficacy, your belief that you can accomplish something. And I have observed that women are more likely to have their tasks interrupted or corrected unnecessarily. And I think that feeds into this larger idea of confidence. We are creating this idea that the women need help and they need to be supervised on those tasks when that's not necessarily the case. And often they are perfectly capable of completing it. But if we don't let them discover that themselves, they're not going to know. Yeah, I I observe almost a need for male teammates to find a way to provide input to their female teammates work. You know, statements like, Yes, that's how that's that's a good way. But what I like to do is, you know, they you take a perfectly good situation and create an unnecessary teachable moment out of it, which is stupidly demoralizing. Is that absolutely? And I've heard you talk on the podcast before about this idea of retention, right? When we yes. watch somebody do something correctly and we go back and tell them, well, I wish you had done it this way. This is how I do it. We are undercutting them and we are making it a harder environment for them to thrive in. And so that's also hurting our retention of women rescuers on these organizations. Does that correlate to different recruitment as well? I think that it definitely can. And I also, that idea of proficiency in applications, right? If we set these standards or if we have unclear expectations or standards through a new member process, you're going to get fewer women that apply because they think they're unqualified. And so looking at ways to market um, basically membership into organizations and having an understanding and and clear outlines of these are foundational skills that you need to come in with. I mean, for a volunteer team like ours, the biggest thing that we want members to have is time and dedication. You don't have to be the fastest person on the mountain. You don't know, you don't need to know how to clear an Abbey field in X amount of time. You don't need to walk in and be like, oh, I already know how to set up all of the systems. And I have my PhD in physics and fully understand uh, mechanical advantage and coefficients of friction and tell you how to do it actually better than what you're doing. We need people to be able to walk in with what we would consider a growth mindset and willing to learn and participate and become a part of the community. And that's a twofold one. How do we market ourselves to attract women to want to be a part of this organization? And how do we create community with the space that's supportive to have women within that? Um, 
there, I think a lot of organizations and teams do a great job at that community piece. And I think that there are organizations that don't do a great job of facilitating and supporting that. And it's a real deterrent and it really hurts. And if you do happen to get a woman with their foot in the door, then you have these retention issues of demoralizing and degrading their experiences by coming in and belittling what they're actually doing because they're, they're doing just fine. They're proficient, they're learning, they're able to achieve these things. But if we're not providing that positive feedback, if we're not providing a community space that feels safe, um, that allows for growth, that allows for failing forward, we're not going to have that retention and we're going to lose a really valuable perspective in terms of what do women bring to organizations? What are they able to evaluate and see that might be slightly different than their male counterparts? You see this in AVI decisions all the time and thinking about that risk mitigation. If you're going to have two guys in the field versus a group or a smaller group with women, they're going to make better decisions. That's what the research shows. And so how does that play into mitigating our risk, supporting our safety, creating an environment and making it accessible to a large portion of the population that feel like it might not be accessible to them? I, I like you brought up the AVI model. Um, there, there's so much great uh, people science and decision-making science coming out of that field. And in fact, it's, it's really fun to watch it and realize that they're they're backing away from the science being about snow and more about the science being about people because people get people killed snow doesn't get people killed um and, and in that realm i know that the the guiding the alpine guiding world and the avalanche world has been successful in women's specific education I can't think of an outdoor pursuit that's tried it that hasn't been success successful. I used to work with the grit clinics out of Bend, um, which was women's mountain biking clinics. Um, and, and eventually they phased out the service we were providing because they had women to do it. It made sense, right? Why isn't it happening in the rescue field? Should it be happening in the rescue field? And can we make it happen in the rescue field? And this is that idea of training as an affiliate group so training a group of similar individuals and research has shown that that's really successful, that that's really important to do. And a lot of other industries, particularly businesses, have started to see the importance of this and started to move forward and provide that training, not just based off of gender, but based off of race or other elements of diversity where we need to provide these spaces and what I have seen in rescue is that we are very averse to it. We really don't want to do it when okay. I have, I'm not sure, but I have certainly tried to create some of these opportunities on my team, create some training nights for women. And I have received a lot of backlash for it. It was something that went over really poorly. Um, and Without kicking your team under the bus, what was what was it? And if you if you don't want to kick anyone your team under the bus, we'll move on. Uh, uh, what was the response? Yeah, uh, I was told that I was not allowed to conduct that, and there were just a lot of conversations, and I felt like that one was um, remembered for a while, or you know, really frowned upon. People felt like it was divisive and that it was exclusionary rather than this idea of inclusion, right? Like bringing in this group that is statistically more likely to uh, have problems with entry and retention in this field and encourage their growth and development. We viewed it as depriving men of an opportunity. And I think that's that mind shift that perspective, that shift that we need to occur in viewing this is not an us versus them, but as an opportunity to provide more opportunities to groups that have historically received less. So I, I've heard that same argument of some effort for inclusion, creating exclusivity is, is kind of the backlash. Um, you know, there's an example, I can't remember what say, there was a lawsuit probably 10 years ago 
against the gym curbs, which is a women's only gym. From men who wanted to join the gym saying, well, you know, we can't, if we had a men's only gym, you'd sue us. So why can't we see you for having a gym that won't let us in? What's the, what's the, what's the education to counteract that statement that says there needs to be an overt effort to create it, to create inclusion? How do, how's that phrase the community to get the buy-in? I think it's this idea of taking ownership of the privilege that certain groups have. Um, there are white men who have greater access and privilege and community given at birth. And that disparity between that demographic and other demographics, when we start to recognize it, then we start to understand the need to have these groups that are pretty specific, whether it's a ladies only training night or whether it's starting to look at specific recruitments with um, people of color or trying, because that's another thing in rescue. It's yes. one that we haven't really talked about, but rescue is white. Rescue yes, is, is very white. Yes, it is. And yeah. so, you know, that's another huge can of worms to talk about and to talk about, you know, for a different day, what are those limiting factors? Um, but for any issue of underrepresented groups, I think that it's really important to have these focused trainings, focused recruitments, and this idea of representation. I foundationally believe you can't be what you don't see. If you don't see people in the industry that look like you, you're consciously or subconsciously going to think that there is no space for you in that industry. Um, and so starting to look at that in terms of what CMC just did with their new rescue manual and putting women in there, creating that representation that women belong, that we are accepting that, we are prioritizing that, and we are showing you that there is space for that. It's as, it's as simple as you know, putting it in a manual is a starting place and then growing from there, having a conversation, creating additional supports to get women into specific classes that build their skills, building up female trainers. And maybe that means discount pathways or scholarships um, and engaging with the community and asking them, what hurdles do you see? I mean, the big one that I would say is starting to look at scholarship opportunities, um, having that as an organization or as a business or as a team, what is limiting somebody from coming in? How can we support you? So when you, when you talk about scholarships, is it because there's a specific financial barrier that's different? Um, or, is it, or is it just driving the perception of greater opportunity? Like what, what's, what's the discount create? So what's I think it depends create? on what demographic we're talking about. If we're talking about women in general, not necessarily. If we're talking about individuals of color, definitely. We definitely see socioeconomic uh, differences in those demographics and those scholarship and discount opportunities are even more foundationally important. But even for something like women in the gender conversation, it's lowering a barrier. Um, it might not it might not necessarily be a monetary barrier, but it's providing access in an easier way, and it's helping to start lowering those hurdles or the gatekeeping in that field. I also think that it plays into this idea that women like to be really proficient and confident in their skills, and sometimes that means that they're going to look for training um, outside of their organization so they can come back in and say, I've got another check mark on my list. You have to take me more seriously. It's something that I've thought about of how, how do I get taken seriously in this industry? What do I have to do? Do I have to train harder? Do I have to be more fit? Do I have to be more educated? Do I have to be able to cite statistics off the top of my head? Um, those are all things that I've tried. Unfortunately, none of them have seemed to paid off. It's just been one of those dynamics of, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, you know the stuff, but we're not going to give you the opportunity. And I absolutely agree. And I would expand upon that and say that anytime we have these barriers, these are exacerbated by each other, right? They compound. And so women do earn less than men, right? So women's annual earnings are about 80% of men. So we do have financial barriers. And every time we add an additional underrepresented group, 
groups that an individual belongs to, those are compounding. So women of color earn significantly less than men, particularly white men. So as trainers or leaders in the industry, that's something that we can't take for granted. And we have to really consciously consider accessibility in all of these different realms because men versus women's accessibility or women of color especially have less access as a whole. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting. I mean the the I think the barriers are, are are visible, invisible, and cultural. We had a we had a sheriff years ago who asked us what would it, what would increase response times? How would we get more people out there? And in the flat answer in the room was daycare. And there was just there was silence from the other end. And and you look across the teams, and the men are responding while their partners are home with the kids. And it's that that dynamic isn't flipping over and it do do you see that as part of it is is that family dynamic playing into lack of access i rescue is certainly not a vacuum right and i think sometimes we love it so much and we're so excited about it that we think it is but all of these larger societal challenges are going to be conveyed in rescue and childcare and domestic responsibilities and that division of labor absolutely carries over to women's ability to participate and participate as freely and frequently as men do. So this has been fascinating. It's been super educational for me. Um, I would love to continue it forever. Um, I think there was a hint here earlier of, of maybe drilling down on individual topics later as specifics. Uh, and, and I hope we get the feedback from people listening that says, yes, let's do that. Uh, we'll, we'll see, we'll see where that goes. Um, specific actionable items. If you were to give rescue team decision makers, a couple hints on how to improve inclusion, how to improve retention, how to get better representation on their teams. What would you tell them if you had them locked in an elevator? Allyship, 100% allyship. And there is this difference. I don't think we all understand it. That's a really good question. And it's one of those, like, what is allyship versus what is mentorship? Where do we draw the line? Because mentorship 100% also important. It's important for everybody on the team to be good, proficient team members um, and feel comfortable shit, comfortable with what they're doing. Allyship takes a mentorship to the next level. Allyship is where individuals from different groups empathize with the minority or with the individual that they're trying to support and bring up. So it would look like the men on the team understanding and hearing the experience of women, not disregarding it. Cause that's something that's happened a lot for me where you're like, Hey, this is something that I've experienced. I've experienced less access to training. And the response was, tell me, show me, prove it versus I hear you. And I'm going to make sure that we look at that. So that would be allyship. Um, as well as just organizations taking on the mindset, not putting the burden on an individual to bring it up, but looking at it as an organization of, do we have 50% women? Do we have minority representation? If we don't, um, what does it look like? How do we actually promote the women on our team? Maybe it's adding extra trainings that are female specific. Maybe it's sitting down and talking to our ladies at a round table and asking them what they need. Um, because it can be really different per organization. Maybe they're totally hitting the nail on the head with a couple of things within their organization. And maybe they're missing a few things. Maybe it is something to do with daycare. They keep planning trainings on the Thursday night that nobody can get a babysitter. Um, or maybe it is something greater than that. Um, and they're not offering training opportunities or they're doing something that's exclusionary. For organizations to send out anonymous surveys asking their membership to respond, asking their membership what they need to feel supported, what they need to feel represented, and consciously looking at the disparity between the men and the women on the team, I would say that would be allyship. 
Wait, are you suggesting the organizations figure out why there's a hole in the bucket rather than just pour more people on top of the bucket? Is that where, is that really, I don't want to mansplain it, but is that really what you just said? <laughs> well, and I think the other important element of that is this idea that it's the organization's responsibility, right? Rather than expecting the women on the team or the people of color on the team, whoever we're talking about here, to do the emotional labor to carry that forward, the team prioritizing that and doing the work themselves and not asking an individual to have to undertake that. All right, well, we're bumping up almost against our hour. And uh, I guess since that's, I guess, the average commute time of our listeners, we're gonna try <laughs> to wrap it up a little bit. Um, this has been the Rad Women of Women and Rescue. Uh, Cassie and Aspen, if you guys wanna provide your contact info here, you can. If you don't, we can filter it uh, through us. So um, your goodbyes, any contact info you wanna give, any closing messages, go. Yes, we would love for you to help us build our community, help us build our representation and be a part of this conversation, whether you're a man or a woman in rescue or somebody who's just interested in rescue. So engage with us on Instagram at women underscore in underscore rescue. That's our Instagram handle. We're also on Facebook. Ladies, we have a private Facebook group for you to find that community, have a safe place to vent, ask for advice and share. Outside of that, you can also contact me or Aspen personally. Our Instagram account links to our personal account if you look at the information. If you're looking for me, my account is Cassie, C-A-S-S-Y underscore Aguirre, A-G-U-I-R-R-E underscore 505, because we are in the 505 of Albuquerque. Aspen, you want to share your info? Yeah, so my Instagram handle is Aspen Wilkes. That's A-S-P-N-W-I-L-K-S. And we'd also love for you to just reach out to us on Instagram or email and tell us how you are helping facilitate these conversations on your team or what that looks like. And if you know any rad women, we would love for you to nominate them so we can feature them on our account as well. Awesome. Uh, so thank you both so much. Uh, I think this is going to resonate really well. I am... Um, I'm a, I'm, a I'm a better trainer for having had this conversation in a small way, and I hope that continues to grow. Uh, Ronan and the Ronan Rescue USA, Ronan Canada, uh, we, are, we are behind your effort. You will hear from more on this um, for several reasons. Um, it's the right thing to do. Uh, it's, it, it's where the world needs to go. And frankly, we'd be stupid if we didn't because it's half the market willing to go, go to classes. So... Um, yes, let's keep the conversation going. Thank you so much. Uh, any questions, Craig at RoninRescue.com. And uh, yeah, tune in for future podcasts. Thank you.